Welcome to Thinking Like a Lawyer with your hosts, Ellie Mistal and Joe Patrice, talking about legal news and pop culture, all while thinking like a lawyer, here on Legal Talk Network. Hello, welcome to another edition of Thinking Like a Lawyer. I'm Joe Patrice from Above the Law, and with me, my colleague, Ellie Mistal. I got into Harvard when it was hard. Oh, oh, it, this is this is sad times for you. That we're of course talking about the big news of the month, which is that Harvard Law has decided, at least on a pilot basis, the caveat that you do to help you sleep at night. On a pilot basis, it's decided to start taking the GRE as an admissions exam rather than exclusively the LSAT. Which just makes Harvard a lot easier for people to get into. Obviously, this is what I'm going to be screaming about of course. today. Um, look, I feel like it is possible to defend the utility of the LSAT and its unique place in the firmament without defending the actual LSAT. I think the actual LSAT is not a particularly good test. I think it's overused. I think it's way overvalued. I don't think that law school should care nearly as much about the LSAT as they do. Mm-hmm. Blah, 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 blah. However, having a real barrier to entry to get into law school is important. The problem that I have with uh, schools, Harvard included now, accepting the GRE, is that if you put yourself in the position of a 22-year-old person right out of college, maybe you've got a liberal arts degree, maybe you don't really know what you need to do, you take the GRE because the GRE gets you into graduate school here and graduate school there, and now, oh, maybe it gets you into law school too. And so you take the GRE, maybe you get a good score, maybe you find yourself applying to law schools without ever having to stop and think if you want to go to law school. The LSAT, on the other end, at least requires a person to kind of step back, get off the easy train, and do something proactively to suggest that they actually want a legal education. And I think that's Very important because I think that one of the ways that where where legal education really fails people, it's not it it fails people who get into legal education without actually wanting to be a lawyer. You know, people who are oh, you can do anything with a law degree. You know, people who want to still be in school who don't want to be out in the working world. The LSAT at least makes them stop and think about it for a second before they start their law school application process. This GRE thing is just going to be, it's just going to make it so much easier for a person to fall into law school. Yeah. Your argue, I worry that your argument proves too much though, because you say this is that barrier. And then you point out as you should, half the people going to law school are just going to law school because they think they can do something with their degree anyway. So how much of a barrier is this already? And then weigh the fact that it's barely doing the job of being a barrier now, although I like the logic of what you're saying, but empirically it doesn't appear to be working. And add in the benefits of, you know, not paying into the LSAT monopoly and not uh, having a test that is only given twice a year when you could have a test that's given more frequently. And more importantly, as far as trying to get people into law who are good at it, I would say countervailing. There's a potential countervailing point, especially since the barrier isn't working, that the barrier has done too much and that there are people who go on to get PhDs who are taking the GRE who might be fine fits for law school if they ever bothered to send in their application. They might be fine fits for law school if they ever wanted to go to law school. But you can't take a history PhD and say like, oh, you'd be a good lawyer. I'm sure you would be a good lawyer if you wanted it. 
But if you don't want it, how is that going to how is that benefit? The other real issue, umbrage I will take at the Harvard announcement is I mean, it's lathered in this like we're trying to improve access to legal education. Are you effing kidding me? You're Harvard. You're not improving access to Harvard by letting people take a different test to apply. 1% of your applicants are going to get in. That's not access, yo. What you're doing is providing a shield for a lot of schools that are not Harvard to now also accept the GRE and artificially inflate their applications and inflate their class sizes by people who don't actually want to go to law school. I mean, I think that is a concern. I'm ambivalent on this uh, at this point. I it, The news has just hit. Uh, we're still processing it. I have not decided whether I think the benefits outweigh the harms to this because uh, I see both. But Do you think he, all those other schools are going to follow? Uh, some will, some won't. Who won't? Uh, I, Yale, but who won't? Right. I, I mean, I do think that there are other schools who worry too much about how they'll be perceived to do that. Uh, I think Harvard also exists in a unique place similar to Yale where a portion of their students are the high-minded people who, oh, you know, I really want to study the history of grammatical clauses in legislation. <laughs> and I was going to get a history PhD, but I might as well go to Harvard Law. And yeah, they're they're in a double PhD law program. And for those individuals, the GRE makes a lot of sense rather than taking two tests. I think to some extent, places like Harvard and and maybe Yale, if they follow suit, they cater to those people. And maybe that's the reason why they do this. I, I, I'll, I, I guess I am forced to agree, right, that this will be a good thing for people who don't really want a JD, but kind of want a PhD in law. Yeah. Um, this will make it easier for them to get one. Yay. Because that's totally what we need. You know, we need actual lawyers in this time as much as any. Actual lawyers willing to go down into the muck and represent low-income clients. We need more lawyers like that. Yep. Harvard is going to produce more lawyers who can sit in a room and talk theoretically about – Yeah. That's great. Yeah. No, I mean, it, obviously there are pros and cons depending on how you feel about scholarship. And, Con, scholarship. Yeah. See, I mean, <laughs> no, I, I tend to be pro it, but having had professors who are JD, PhDs, but – Again, yeah, it's true that what's really likely to happen is this becomes a shield for mid-tier law schools to, even if they don't accept these students, to open up the opportunity to collect the 50 bucks from a whole new range of students and applications that they ultimately reject. People don't understand that there are law schools who need the 50 bucks. I just, yeah, let's move on. Let's move on. But let's keep on talking about law schools because it's the news. Um, and also because what would have been the biggest story this month had it not been in, in the law school world, had it not been for Harvard's announcement, would have been the annual release of the U.S. News and World Report law school rankings. Oh, but it wasn't their annual release. It was, it was us leaking their release. That's why you should read above the law, folks. Um, yes, U.S. News has not officially released, at least at the time of this recording, U.S. News has not officially released the rankings, though they are up on our website. And the big news there is that Georgetown University Law Center... Do we have a sad trombone sound effect here? <laughs> ...fell out of the vaunted T-14. Now, the reason why the T-14 is the T-14 is because ever since U.S. News started making law school rankings, the same 14 schools have been in the top 14. They've switched places amongst themselves. But the 14 schools that were in the top 14 the year that U.S. News first released their rankings, which I want to say is 1981, 
sometime in the 80s, yeah. have been the same 14 schools every year until this year when Georgetown fell out of the 14 down to 15 and the University of Texas Austin Law School crept up uh, above Georgetown into the 14th position. We should also give a shout out. Their appearance at 15 is the extra, you know, ignobility of this is that they aren't even in sole possession of 15th place. They're tied at 15th with... Sodomites! I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, fair enough. Uh, wasn't necessarily going to go there, but let me see real quick who it is. UCLA, right? I was going to say... I was right. I, I know, I was... <laughs> yeah, that, that was the joke I was building up to. I was going to go UCLA, so you're right. See? <laughs> Good. I, I'm glad that we're on the same wavelength, but yeah, another one of those Pac-12 schools that isn't going to win the Pac-12 tournament. So this brings up the question, obviously. I mean, we talk about this every year. How should you make your decision? What are some factors to consider to make your own law school decision? How should you pick a school? Should you care um, that Georgetown fell out of the, the top 14? If you get into Georgetown and Texas, has your decision changed in some way um, based on this news? Um, so we want to talk about that a little bit. Um, every year, um, Above the Law runs a series of decisions. Um, we encourage people to email us what schools they're looking at, and we give them a little uh, advice columnist answers to their concerns. If you're listening and you know somebody who is thinking about going to law school or somebody who's gotten into some law schools and they're trying to figure out what to do, encourage them to email us. We do five, six, seven of these a year. But for this episode of the show, Joe, I just wanted to kind of start by asking you, how did you make your decision on which law school to go to? How I made my decision on which law school to go to. So I took the exam kind of very much at the late stage. I wasn't positive I wanted to be a lawyer, but I was, I had had a great experience with a track of my of my poli-sci classes, I was an econ major, but also I did poli-sci on them too, that were dealing with law, and I found them fascinating. They were taught by a JD PhD who said that I would, I would be a good fit, so I took the test. They said I did okay on that, at which point I applied to a bunch of schools. I didn't apply to Yale because I never— and You're coming from out west, just to be I'm clear. I'm coming from the west coast. Uh, I did not apply to Yale because I, I looked and I was like, I did well, but I didn't do that well. I got waitlisted at Harvard, and then I got into the everybody below that. And I toyed with waiting out the waitlist, but I, I continued my process of learning more about the schools. And once I realized between Columbia and NYU, I could live in this magical place called New York, I was like, no, I don't need to go to Harvard anymore. I X'd them off the list. Not that I necessarily would have gotten in anyway, but I was like, no, I'm cool. Let's just <laughs> let's just live in New York. Uh, and I made the decision between Columbia and NYU, which was a difficult decision, largely based on the classes I visited while I was out here on a weekend trip. Uh, I found Columbia to be very stuffy, very pretentious. The folks were uh, literally a thing that was said by an admissions person was, we don't think we should have to sell you on Columbia. I mean, we are Columbia. Meanwhile, I went to NYU. Sounds right. <laughs> Sounds to, accurate. Yeah, that was with a scheduled... <laughs> scheduled meet and greet with NYU. I didn't have time to schedule with the office, but I just like walked in. They said, oh, you know, well, you're free to roam around and do whatever. Uh, I visited a professor who my undergrad professor had taken his classes. So I visited him and just told him what I was. And he said, oh, 
well, I have a seminar this afternoon. Here's the readings for this week and just gave them to me and gave me like three hours to uh, read everything. And his class was awesome. And I could follow it because I'd read everything. And I was like, these people seem way more excited about me being a student than Columbia. So that's how I did it. So there were no financial considerations? No? No, not really. I mean, it was... I was in the heyday of the boom. I was in that period where every bank in the universe was like, "What do you want more money? We'll give you more money. Are, you're going to be a lawyer at the end, right? Are you sure you don't want extra money?" So no. And you're happy with, and you're you, you uh, uh, between yeah. the the final two, you think you made the right call? I did because uh, you know a lot of NYU Columbia people awesome. now, and they're yeah. They're, I mean, we have a uh, Columbia person on staff yeah. here at Above the Law. I mean, she went to that Cow College, but. <laughs> You know, I went to the real law school in New York, and that's that's cool. That's cool. <laughs> All right. How did you decide to double down on pretentiousness? Um, well, it's in my blood, right? There, there's, there's, there's the elitism that I was born with, and that made it somewhat easy for me. Um, look, I applied to 11 colleges. I got into 10. Um, Stanford was the one that rejected wow, me. Wow, 11. That's aggressive. I, I did not apply to – I applied to like seven. Or for college? Oh, for college. Co oh, college. Yeah, for, I was saying I applied to 11 colleges. Okay, okay, okay. Because um, I didn't know. Stanford, I didn't get into Stanford. I went to Harvard. Mm -hmm. I applied to five law schools. Okay, top that's, five. That's about right. All right. The only one that I didn't get into was Stanford. Um, I don't know why I'm not Stanford material, but I am clearly not. They rejected me twice, which I've made a point of on the website when I have an opportunity. <laughs> And so once once I was into Harvard, Yale, uh, Columbia, I think the four I was got into was Harvard, Yale, Columbia, and NYU. I kind of quickly discarded the the lower two ranked schools just based on the ranking. I mean, I love New York. I'm from New York. I knew that I was eventually going to want to live and practice in New York to the extent that I was going to want to practice, but they were ranked lower, so I didn't really even give them mm. um, a fair shot. I think I visited NYU okay. um, just because I hadn't visited there for college just to get a feel, but like it was also like free trip to New York. So I was really choosing between Harvard and Yale, and my decision was based on two, I think, ultimately somewhat stupid factors. Um, one was a sense of like, I really thought law school was going to be college too. I was good at college. I liked college. I didn't take any time off between mm -hmm. law school and yeah, college. And I was just looking to kind of keep it. You know, I love senior year of college. I was just trying to keep it rolling. So having graduated from Harvard, a lot of my friends were still going to be in Boston. Um, my girlfriend, who was now my wife, was still going to be in Boston. She also went to Harvard, but she took a year off um, got it, in between. Got it, got it. So I knew she was going to be around. Like all of my peoples were in Boston and none of my peoples were in New Haven. Um, and so that was a big kind of a big factor. Oh, that makes sense. And then the second factor, which... Uh, I mean, I, I don't know if I knew then what I knew now. I don't know if this would have really changed. But when I looked at my scores, and you know, Harvard gives you, you, know, you have the little grid, and you know, like, yeah. you have X LSAT and X GPA, and you're X demographic, and you're going to get into these schools, right? You just know. So if you looked at the Harvard grids for where I was with my scores and, and everything, I was kind of right smack in the center of what Harvard grads, yeah. what Harvard admits. Um, for Yale, I was just a little bit below average, right? Just a little bit below the cut. I still got in, but I didn't want anybody to be able to say to me that I only got into where I got into because of affirmative action. Oh, like okay. I just, I just wanted that off the fucking table. That makes sense. And I felt that being your kind of 
average Harvard law applicant, having, remember, having gone to Harvard once, having graduated from Harvard and being now your average kind of Harvard law admitted person, I thought that would just take it off the table. Mm-hmm. Whereas if I got into Yale, just because of my scores were just a little bit low, some jerk would always be able to kind of like throw that in my face. Now, obviously, I have learned the hard way that there's nothing that you can do as a black person to ever take that off the table. Jerk off white people will always say that you only got into where you are. You only are where you are um, because of affirmative action. And so my attempt to end the the debate was actually kind of stupid. And so I don't know if I had to do over again if I just would have taken the number one school. Right. Interesting. Because, you know, everybody look, Harvard's a three times the size of Yale, everybody who goes to Harvard says, oh, I got into Yale too, but I decided and blah, blah, blah. Like in, in, in and, the, yeah. and it's a lot of BS, right? And so I'm, I just told a whole fucking story about how I got into Yale too, right? So like, I don't know that if I had to do over again, I just would have taken the Yale prestige and just been done with it. Yeah, the fact that all your people were in Boston strikes me as a better argument. Because one thing that, as far as my decision to ax the wait list was I didn't see ultimately since I figured I was probably going to go into practice and not legal academia, I didn't really see an advantage to going to a Harvard and or a Yale over going to an NYU or Columbia. If your job is, if your life plan is to go work in a big law firm, maybe go to the government afterwards, maybe into prosecution, whatever it is, if those practical tasks are your goal, there's not much distinction there. Like you go to Harvard, Stanford, and Yale if in the back of your mind you're like, I'm pretty sure I could be a law professor someday. Like that's the one thing they give you on top. I'm pretty sure Otherwise, I could be a justice. Yeah, exactly. Otherwise, they're going to give you basically the same thing as everyone else. So I was like, no, I'll, I'll be in New York. But no, that's interesting. For both of us, what I think is interesting is that neither of us, as we've just explained, really thought anything about the financial situation, right? Yeah. It wasn't like, you know, Harvard doesn't have it. I wasn't getting any loans. I wasn't getting any merit scholarship for any of the schools that I got into. It was going to all be need-based financial aid. Mm-hmm. I knew kind of going in that I would be borrowing my entire legal education. My parents weren't going to help me. Um, I knew that going in. And, it's, and at the point of being a 22-year-old, Like I said, I applied to the top five schools. I didn't apply to a Michigan or a Northwestern or a place where not only might I have gotten in, but I likely would have gotten in with some kind of scholarship. Mm. Um, That, for various stupid reasons, were not part of my decision-making process. You know, I could have probably gotten into Vanderbilt with something approaching a full ride. And that wasn't even – I didn't even give myself that option from the perspective of a 22-year-old. Well, one of the things that I've always said when people ask me that is the hardest about trying to become a lawyer, but one of the hardest barriers that you can have, which I know I had and I believe you had too, is not having... Oh, no, that's not true. You actually do have an exception to this, I think. But not having a lawyer in the family you can actually like engage with. And you have somebody, as I recall, no, right? I, oh, I, I thought you had like an uncle or something who like knew. Like, What was the story about Indiana Maurer versus... Uh, the Indianapolis Law School. He said something about, eh, whatever. So we'll, we'll, we'll deal with this later. Point is, I think one of the biggest barriers is not having anybody in your family who's ever done it. Someone you can go to and go like, well, what's going on here? So I was going in blind. And things like, I didn't really think, well, maybe I should go to some like lower state school or something like that, lower ranked state school to save money. Because I was like, yeah, that's a lot of money. But I mean, I'm going to be 
making a ton of money forever, right? Because there's no <laughs> way I might ever go down a path that doesn't pay that. Like, And obviously, ultimately, after 11 years, I left practice. But even if I hadn't left practice, I didn't have the person say, oh, no, 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 no. There's a high likelihood that in between your associating and you becoming a partner, you might take four years to work at the U.S. Attorney's Office and you won't make anything there. And like those sorts of discussions I didn't get to have. So I never considered finances because I was like, I'll just get money dumped on me and I'll pay it. I never considered, uh, to pick up on what you're saying, I never considered how the debt really then defines your career options when you graduate, right? Because from my perspective, again, having not had lawyers in my families, yes, I knew that there was probably some Wall Street firm that paid a lot more than the ACLU, right? right? That, that You don't have to be smart to know that. That's just yes. kind of obvious on its face, right? But the gap, the, yeah. the, the extent of the gap between what you make if you're out there working for a nonprofit, working for an NGO, whatever, versus what you make at a white shoe Wall Street firm – was not something that I fully appreciated from the standpoint of a tw- being a 22-year-old. And then how much I was going to end up owing these people was not something that I fully appreciated. When I had my exit interview, I remember by this point I was engaged. Um, when I had my exit interview from Harvard, now where the bill comes due, not just for law school now, but for college as well, right. I left that being like, baby, we should make them a child and give it to them. Yeah. <laughs> in payment for our because we're never going to pay this off and by the way I'm almost 40 and still haven't even t- I'm just now getting into the principal I think right like, uh, like, this is where I jump in and say that as of December 30th 2016 I have no more loans wow now 11 I, years of practice yes 11 years of practice and then now by that point almost to my four year anniversary of doing this job after leaving practice that said also I had the advantage that you did not, which is I didn't, I went to the University of Oregon as an in-state student for undergrad, so I didn't have any undergrad loans. I only, it took me this long to only pay off the law. That's amazing. But no, I remember when, when, so, you know, you do the on-campus interviewing and and you, whatever. Man, when Debevoise offered me my position after my summer, it really kind of hit me. They were offering me more money than anybody in my family had ever made. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not like I come from like the streets, all right? I come right. from a two-parent college educated goddamn family yeah. and they were offering me more money that and so that's the kind of thing that it's hard when when now I have the opportunity to go and speak to students. I don't think that people especially kind of pre-law college students really understand just how important the money is going to end up being and so they don't properly value free they i mean kids just do not properly value free not loan not debt like actual effing free that's a yeah well and it's also important that when we did it the concept of the legal market exploding was not anything anyone really envisioned and oh man they were wrong (laughs) they were so wrong Uh, I did not ever get laid off. I know several people who went to very prestigious schools who did. I'm very lucky and or I made myself as valuable to my firm as possible. So I was indispensable. Whatever it was, I made sure that I survived any purges. But yeah, no, it was brutal. The whole concept of the market, I think, has changed. And actually, the, the fact that the market has changed, I do think, has helped some younger students start to think critically about the finances. But let me ask ask you this question. I mean, because we get this a lot 
um, when we do this decision series. I just said you have to value free. How much do you value? How many spots right. on the rankings list do you value free? Yeah, I mean, that's a difficult question. I also, I am very much on record as hating ordinal rankings. I think that the idea that the gap in this speaks to, we'll discuss more in the print on Above the Law, the whole T14 issue, the idea that the gap between 14 and 15 is somehow bigger and different than the gap between 24 and 25, certainly it's true that those kind of gaps exist and ordinal rankings can't capture them. I'm not sure 14 is where that gap was, but nonetheless, I hate ordinal rankings for that reason because I think it sometimes convinces somebody, I'm going to give up on this free to get something get the 48th school instead of the 49th school. And I'm like, no, no. Meanwhile, somebody else might say, you know, I'm not going to do something because what's the real difference between 16 and 17? And I'll go, oh my God, a whole bunch. Uh, And that's something that you, that's a nuance that isn't really captured by rankings a lot of times that requires talking to people like us, which is to throw in yet another plug. This is why I think, it's important to send us your questions. If you're pondering law school, email them to us at tips at above the law.com and we will answer them either in print or on this podcast at some point in the future because we can add insights that you can take or leave, but you know, we can have some fun with it anonymously. Also, stay tuned in May for Above the Law's law school rankings. Oh, which, yes. We will also have our own rankings. Which we actually think are much better than the U.S. News ones. Well, for one thing, we actually base them on this year's data as <laughs> yes. opposed to them. The reason U.S. News gets to come out so early is they're basing it on year-old data. We wait till the new stuff. We wait till the ABA releases all the new data, and we tend to do it based on outcomes as opposed to input. So we don't care. We don't rank schools based on their LSAT scores of their incoming class. We rank them on based on their job performances for their outgoing classes. So... Nice plug. I think that free is worth a lot, but it's not worth changing a tier. And we can oh yeah, and we can debate where the tiers are, right? But I do think that let's say Yale is giving you something so different than what let's say Michigan is giving you. Michigan is a great school. But Michigan for free and Yale at full freight, that's a hard choice. Yeah. And I probably say, with the caveat of what Joe already said about what you actually want to do with your life, Yale is probably going to give you something very different than Michigan is going to give you that justifies their cost over Michigan's free. However, I mean, Yale gives you the keys to running the world. So, <laughs> as far as I've it's been, it's like an executive bathroom, except it's like the Pentagon. So, as far as I've been led to believe, right? However, the difference between Penn, who I think is like seven in our, yeah. at full freight, versus Michigan, which is like nine for free. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Of course you're going to Michigan. Go blue. Um, <laughs> but I really want to work in Philadelphia. F you. You're going to Michigan for free. <laughs> yeah. Chicago is fine. <laughs> so I do think that the tiers matter. You know, I think that if you're looking at Vanderbilt for free versus Duke at full freight, that's a tough choice, but you probably want to work in that area, and Vanderbilt free is a really good option. If you're looking, on the other hand, at University of Tennessee for free versus Duke at full freight, now you're jumping tiers, and and now you're probably going to get a lot more bang for your bucks at Duke. Those aren't ironclad rules, of course. I mean, I think the situation is any kind of decision like this is inherently personal. But I do think that people need to think 
think about the tiers at which they're getting into. Yeah. So there you have it. We've talked a lot about law school and law school admissions from Harvard's new decisions about this test to how we made our choices to how you can go about making your choices. As we've kind of mentioned throughout the show, send us these questions uh, if you're debating between a few schools at tips at above the law.com. Also, you know what? Send us any question you have, you know? <laughs> I mean, we're, we'll do a mailbag show every now and again, and uh, you might be able to get on there. I mean, we'll do, I mean, the whole, to go back to the original premises of this show, right? The original pitch of this show and the meaning of the title, Thinking Like a Lawyer, was that we were going to address ridiculous situations from the perspective of being lawyers. So if you want us to break down you know, what the liability costs on building a Death Star are, like I, I like for liability insurance on a Death Star at this point, which at this point, there have been a multiple incidents. Yes. I don't know how you build one these you days. Can't, you can't get that covered. It's, yeah. Anyway, point is, if you want to send any kind of ridiculous idea, just go ahead. Tips at AboveLaw.com. It might show up in another one of these in the future. Thanks for listening to us. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast. Be sure to write a review because those help. I know everybody always says that, but they do. They actually, iTunes and places like that, they all count your reviews to uh, figuring out where you come out when you type in law podcast. And it'll be like, oh, this one's got a lot of positive reviews. So it puts it higher. So do all that. Follow us on Twitter. I'm at Joseph Patrice. He's at L-E-L-I-E-N-Y-C. We are at Above the Law. Read us. If you have any tips about law school, judges, crazy court cases, guys in the middle of a trial for arson whose pants catch on fire, which is an actual thing that happened. Do send those things to us so that we can uh, talk about them. And follow the Legal Talk Network app to listen to all of their shows. And now I think I've exhausted every single thing I'm supposed to say. I think so, too. All right. Thanks for listening. Talk to you guys later. Peace out. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. You can also find us at AboveTheLaw.com, ATLRedline.com, iTunes, RSS, Twitter, and Facebook. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. 